0: And so we pray for your churches as well, Lord, that that we would be your people here in the midst of this, that we would be faithful, and that we wouldn't put our trust and hope in nations or leaders, but in you, and that we would go out into our communities with the gospel that you've given us, the gospel of good news that frees people from their sin and changes hearts. May you bring about unity through the gospel, Father, we pray. Father, we pray that over the rest of this service as well, may your gospel be proclaimed loudly and powerfully in each one of our lives. May the songs that we sing bring our redemption. May we pray be resting in your redemption. And may this time now, as we turn to your word, be a reminder of the redemption that you've brought. So, Father, we pray now as we turn to your word that you would speak to each one of us clearly and powerfully. Anything that may distract us from hearing your word, any anxiety or fear or anger or frustration, anything that would hinder us from hearing what you have to say this morning, Father, remove that from us um, so that we can hear and so that you may speak clearly to us. So, Father, we pray as we come to your word now that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. So uh, I wanted to do something a little different this morning. Um, we are covering two chapters in the book of Revelation again, and it's a lot, um, a lot of ground to cover, it's a lot to read, and yet, as I worked on my sermon and uh, um, prepared for the service, I thought we still we still should read the whole uh, both chapters. I think the whole image given to us in these two chapters is really powerful, and so it 's not on the screen, and that 's um, Multiple reasons, but one good thing that it's not on the screen is it allows you to take a moment to let these images become images in your mind. I mean, this is what this vision is, is all of these crazy images. And so, do what you can to try to let these images sink in. Some of them are hard to actually picture um, because it's a, it's a vision. But, but try to let these images settle in your mind as we re- read uh, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created." And to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands and thousands And I want to start by saying, um, if you get done reading that passage and you feel awe and wonder, you have understood the passage. (laughs) Um, It's always important when you get into the book of Revelation in particular to understand you don't have to understand every little detail and every little aspect of the book to understand its meaning. Meaning. The point of this passage is to tell us that we have an awesome and glorious God who's worthy of all praise. And that when, when angels and creatures and people enter into the presence of God, there's this gut reaction of praise. They have to fall on their face and praise Him. Just like that gut reaction we have when we see a glorious sunset at night and you see it and you go, oh, thank you. That's a gut thing. And when people see the glory of God... And his power, there's a gut reaction to fall on our face and worship him. But I also want to say once I think, once we begin to understand all the little details of this passage, it only makes it more beautiful and more powerful. And uh, one of the things that I have noticed as I've studied the book of Revelation over the years is that as I dive into it more and begin to see the beauty of these passages, I find my heart starting to race at moments of the beauty and the power and the glory of God. And I found that this week. I was writing the sermon and all of a sudden my heart's going and I'm thinking, this is incredible. And so we're, we're given this vision today and John says it's another vision. So we had a vision before of Jesus and, and the churches. We saw all of that happening and now he's given another vision and this time he said he's taken into heaven. He said, behold, there's a door and it was opened into heaven and it's important to remember that he says it's a vision. He's not bodily taken into heaven, and he's not even necessarily like, spiritually taken into heaven in, in one sense of the word. He's taken into heaven in a vision. That's why um, you know, it's all images and stuff. He told us that. So, but it's important to know that this is happening in heaven or in the heavenly realms. And he says, that once I was in the Spirit, and behold, that like in the Spirit is this terminology of a vision. I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And we immediately know who that is. Um, because over and over and over in the Old Testament, we have a picture of our God seated on His throne. It comes up over and over. We have our God. He's seated on his throne, and he says, and and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And as you read through the Old Testament and the prophets, they start they describe God this way all the time, as this kind of shining light and, and sparkling diamonds, which is always pointing to his glory. There's just a glory of God that, that surrounds him. And the rainbow we, reminds us of Noah, right? Which it was this promise of God to never judge the earth by a flood. Remember, by a flood. <laughs> um, but it's a sign of God's mercy. And so the picture we're seeing here is God seated on His throne, surrounded in glory, and surrounded in His mercy then he says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Which should remind us of Exodus. When the people of God, when God descended on Mount Sinai, he descended on it in thunder and lightning and roaring thunder. And uh, the people were afraid. They said, we're not going there. Moses, you go. (laughs) You go talk to him. And you come back and tell us because we're kind of freaked out. And so there's this idea of the power of God and the glory of God and the mercy of God all surrounding Him, seated on His throne. And then it says, before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, the sea was always seen as a place of chaos and disorder. The sea, um, they were fearful of the sea, which is why later on in this book we see the beast come out of the sea. And throughout the Old Testament we see Leviathan, which is like this image of of chaos and disorder. He lives in the sea. And yet here we have a picture of God's throne and before him is the sea of glass, like crystal. The chaos and the roaring sea is calm which is a picture that God is ruling and reigning over that. God's in control over the chaos that we see in the world. He's in authority over the evil and rebellion of the world. But there's more than just one throne, isn't there? There's one throne that's at the center, but around the throne, there's 24 thrones. And seated on the 24 thrones are 24 elders who are clothed in white garments and golden, with golden crowns on their heads. And again, as we read through Scripture, we're told that the people of God, will have their, those who are in Christ will have their sins forgiven, they will be purified, and they'll be given white garments. And the people of God have a crown of righteousness stored up for them in heaven. So it's a picture of the people of God, and you might say, well, why why 24? Why, why, you know, and there's a lot of ways to get to the number 24, but I think the easiest way is just to look in the book of Revelation. You get to the chapter 21 of Revelation where the, the new Jerusalem is being built here on heaven. And it says it's going to be built on the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so the 24 elders The people of God are showing the people of God throughout all of history, from the Old and New Testament. The people of God in the Old Testament are not like lesser people of God. The people of God in the New Testament are not better. We're, We're all the people of God throughout history, and we're all before the throne praising God. And then we have these creatures that sometimes we have a hard time knowing what to do with all around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures. They're full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings and are full of eyes all around and within. And we think, whew, how do you picture something like that? You can't. Um, and that's part of the point. You can't picture it. There's all of these things going on. But, but take a moment and think back to your Old Testament. Have we seen things like this before? In a few different places. On, on the one hand, when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's brought into the throne room of God, and what does he see? He sees cherubim and seraphim, these creatures with six wings. And they're going around the throne of God saying, Holy Holy, holy, right? But also you get into Ezekiel chapter 1 and he's given an image of four creatures that look like an ox, look like an eagle, look like a man, look like a lion. But they're here on earth. And they're roving around earth. And so there, there's a question, right, are these the same creatures seen in Ezekiel? Or are these the same creatures in um, in Isaiah. And so if it's Isaiah, then these are just seraphim. These are angels that are designed to just glorify God forever. But if they're the creatures from Ezekiel, then there's something else going on. And, and what's important to see is the number four. Remember, all these numbers always mean something. And for them, the number four was a number of the earth. They saw the, the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth. It was kind of uh, four is the number of the earth. And so uh, a number of commentators say these are the angels, the seraphim. A number of commentators say actually these creatures are representative of creation in the presence of God, worshiping God. That's why there's all the different animal pictures. That's why it's the number four. And, uh, and as I've studied it, I think, um, maybe you think I'm trying to get off scot-free here. I think it's both. I think these are angels in the presence of God representing all of creation. And all of creation is day and night never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Which is just a picture of of Psalm 19 that says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Like The the Bible says repeatedly that all of creation is proclaiming the glory of God day and night. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 is declaring the glory of God. And so we see this picture of these creatures declaring the glory of God. And then the church, the, the, tw- the 24 elders, hear creation declaring the glory of God and they have their own reaction of praise and they say, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. And notice what the church is praising God for. His creation, which is why I think we have to understand these things as being creation. Because they see creation praising God and then they come to God and they say, Wow, God, you're glorious and mighty and power because you created all of this. And, and you sustain them. By your will they exist and were created. He upholds all of creation. Not only did he create it at the beginning, but he upholds it. It's still here because God is holding it in his hand. Now, take a step back, because that's a lot of information, and just take a step back and and make sure we get this picture in our mind, and also make sure we don't connect what's going on here with what was going on in the last two chapters, because I think this is where this all begins to get me going and the power of it. Remember last week in chapters 2 and 3, we were given a picture, and it was an actual picture of actual things that were happening, actual churches on earth. And things were messy, right? There's persecution, there's false teaching running rampant, there's temptation. It just seemed like chaos all over. And some churches were struggling, some churches were doing okay, and some churches were about to die. And you could look at the church on earth and think, pretty, weak, and unimpressive. And so Jesus comes to John and He says, now let me rip open the curtain here and let you see what's happening in heaven. From on earth, looks weak, unimpressive, struggle, chaos, now I'm going to rip this open and in heaven, we have our God. And He's seated on His throne in glory, in power, and in majesty. The people of God look like a mess down here. But in the heavenly realms... They're seated around the throne, falling down before God in worship. Creation looks like it's falling apart. Earthquakes and, and creation is crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Says, what, what we see here on earth is not the full reality. There's more going on than what we can see. There's things happening in the heavenly realms. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't forget that. That's the power of these visions. Is he's ripping open heaven and saying, here's what's going on outside of this. And so, so you walk out into creation. You think it's all under, out of control. You're driving home today and you're slipping around on the roads. Don't forget that every one of those snowflakes is crying out, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty? (laughs) You may come into church and you think our worship is yeah, it's not real great. We mess up, we we go too fast, we slow down, things don't go right, and says, But in heaven, it's glorious. The worship that we're doing here is happening also in heaven right now. In a way we don't always understand. And it may seem not real impressive here. It may seem kind of like, yeah, here. And yet in heaven, it's bringing angels to their knees. And we're seeing the glory of our God. It's, it's God's people crying out, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And it just keeps going on. And the vision continues beyond that. So we have this picture of the throne room of God, and then he says, but then I saw in the right hand of Him who seated on the throne, in the right hand of our God, a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And uh, this scroll is important, big time, because it really sets up the rest of the book. You know, in chapter 5, we see a scroll that's there all the way through the end till chapter 22, and it's really important. We, people ask, "What does this scroll mean? What's it for? What's what's written on it?" and uh, and why is it all sealed up? And so, for one, it's sealed up because, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But we see pictures of a scroll that's sealed up in Daniel. Daniel's told to write these things down and then seal them up on a scroll. And so you think, okay, we see some of that imagery back in the Old Testament. And we see pictures of scrolls in the Old Testament too. So in Ezekiel, God says, here's, He gives Ezekiel a vision of a scroll, and on the scroll is written words of lamentation and mourning and woe, which just means curses. And so we read the book of Revelation and we say, Yep, I see a lot of that, don't I? I see a lot of lamentation and mourning and woe and curses. And so, this scroll has some of that going on in it. But, I also want to say that this scroll has more than that going on. It has judgment as part of it. But, but also, we see God come to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and say, write down everything I tell you in a scroll. And what Jeremiah wrote down involved words of judgment, Right? but also words of salvation. And so these scrolls have both. And we see that in the book of Revelation, that as the seals are broken on this scroll, and as the scroll is rolled open, and the words that are written on the scroll come to pass, the end game, when it's all opened, when it's all revealed, what, what's the end? The kingdom of God is here. The new heavens and the new earth are here. And so this scroll has words of judgment on it, salvation on it, but ultimately, as it's opened and as it's revealed, it's about bringing the kingdom of God. And why it's so powerful to understand that is then this mighty angel comes and proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll to break its seals? And there's silence. No one in heaven Or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I mean, what he's asking is, he's looking out at all of creation saying, who's worthy to bring about the kingdom of God? And no one stands forward. Which is powerful because this has been the cry. He's crying out to all of humanity saying, are you worthy to bring about the kingdom of God? And even the most prideful and arrogant can't open their mouth. He looks out to the angels. Even the angels who rebelled and thought they could bring about the kingdom of God. Even Satan who rebelled and thought he could bring about the kingdom. He looks at them. Are you worthy to bring about the kingdom? And their mouths are shut. And he's, he's asked, this angel has asked this question figuratively throughout history. He came to Rome who was causing all the problems with the churches at that time. He comes to Rome and says, Rome, are you able to bring about the kingdom? And even Rome had to shut their mouth. Went to Napoleon, who thought he was going to bring about the kingdom. And Napoleon said, Napoleon, can you bring about the kingdom? He had to shut his mouth. He asked Donald Trump that question. Can you bring about the kingdom? And even Donald Trump had to keep his mouth shut. And he's asking Joe Biden that question right now. Are you worthy to bring about the kingdom of God? And he's quiet too. And he can come to our nation and our country and say, maybe if you just pull together, maybe democracy can bring about the kingdom of God. And we have to keep our mouths shut too. Because we're not. We cannot bring about the kingdom of God. No one, no creature, no country no ruler. And so John sees this silence and he says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And that, I mean, this is the story of history, isn't it? People and nations trying to bring about the kingdom and recognizing they cannot do it. They're not worthy. And then it's full of weeping and sorrow because we can't do it because if we put all of our hope in us or in nations or in rulers or even in the collective will of the people we will be left weeping because we cannot bring about the kingdom of God but the church says one of the elders says weep no more because the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. I mean, the church's job is to remind people that we cannot bring about the kingdom of God, but there is one who can. He's the Messiah. Jesus Christ, all of that imagery, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, it's all imagery from the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. And it says, He can open the scroll, he can open the seven seals, he can bring the kingdom of God into the world. Why? Because he conquered. He lived, he died, and he rose again. And he is the only one who can bring the kingdom of God. And then John sees another picture. The the church says, we've got the Messiah. He can do this. And then John says, and then between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It's a picture of Jesus. He's a lion of Judah, but he's also a lamb as though it had been slain bloody but not dead it looks as if it had been slain because he died and he rose again from the dead and and it's again it's a reminder back to the old testament back to the passover the sacrificial lamb that brought protection from death but he's not dead he's overcome he's bloodied but he's overcome he's risen from the dead and he has seven horns It's like, all right, how how do we picture a lamb with seven horns? You don't. Um, I guess you could try to picture it, but the idea is that horns throughout all of Scripture is, is a sign of authority, and we'll see that. Even corrupt authority, but good authority as well. And so the fact that He has seven horns, we talked about last week, the number seven means fullness, right? Which shows that Jesus has all authority, which is what He told His disciples. Right before He ascended to heaven, He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so it's a picture of this lamb who is risen from the dead, has all authority in heaven and on earth. And then remember what Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. He was told, he, they didn't want him to go, right? They said, don't leave, don't leave. And he said, no, trust me, it's good for me to go because when I go to heaven, then I can send you the Holy Spirit, which is those seven spirits of God sent throughout all the earth. Picture of Jesus having all authority and sending the Holy Spirit to be with his people, with his church on the earth. And then one of the most powerful things is when Jesus steps onto the scene, all heaven breaks loose. I mean, the, like the first, you know, eight verses of this chapter are describing Jesus, and then the last eight verses of this chapter or more are all praises of Jesus. It's like everything just breaks loose. They see Jesus for who He is, and then they go crazy. And so it starts off, the church and all of creation, the elders and the creatures, say, Worthy are You, Jesus, to take the scroll, to open its seals, to bring about the kingdom. For You were slain, and by Your blood You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then he says, then I looked and then I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and then the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. So as the church praises God and as creation praises God, then the angels are drawn in. And there's so many angels you can't number them. And they start praising Jesus and they say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and beauty and, and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing.'" And the praise isn't done. He says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see, this, it's, the, the praise is kind of expanding out. It starts with the church and creation and it expands out to the angels. And then it even rumbles enough in the heavenly realm that it reaches us here on earth. And it says, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's powerful. And again, it's important to take a moment and step back and remember what's happening. This is all happening in the heavens, in the heavenly realm, however you want to say that. Why would we in pandemonium? From our point of view, on earth we may only see the persecution, the false teaching, the temptation, the chaos... From our point of view, we may only see, we do only see these failed attempts over and over and over to bring about the kingdom of God. From our point of view, we may be tempted to just collapse in despair and weep loudly like John did. But the church reminds us, weep no more. God's seated on His throne right now in the midst of this chaos. The church is worshiping Him around His throne right now in the midst of this chaos. All of creation is crying out, holy, 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 right now in the midst of this chaos. And Jesus Christ has, been, has lived, died, and rose again, and He's conquered, and He's holding on to this scroll, which means the kingdom will come. That's why He told us to pray. Pray, your kingdom come. It will come. There's no question about it. These things must happen. And Jesus is in control of it. He's actually the one, as we see next week, who starts breaking open the seals and opening the scroll and bringing the kingdom of God into the world. And we can't see it so very clearly because we're here. But this is a reminder. This is all actually happening. It's not so chaotic as we think, <laughs> always, and God is working. He's bringing about his plan. And so there's three different ways we can respond to this in the midst of our own chaos, right? Because I think we all would agree. The world seems pretty chaotic right now. Our country seems chaotic. and so how do we respond? And I think the first way is to we respond by receiving comfort. reminded that our God is the one whose throne is seated on the calm waters. He's he's got authority over all of this chaos. And be reminded that Christ is holding on to the scroll. He, He will bring about the kingdom of God. He's actually bringing it about right now in the midst of all of the chaos we're experiencing. And no one can take that authority away from them. And so we can find comfort in that. But we can also find confidence. And don't forget that every one of the letters last week that we went through, they ended with the same call, the same promise. To those who overcome. Calling the church. Church, to those who overcome, you will, you will enter into the very presence of Jesus Christ. To those who overcome in the midst of all of this chaos. And now we're seeing, we've seen a picture of our Savior who overcame. Who suffered in the midst of chaos. Who died in the midst of chaos. But who rose from the dead and he overcame. And so we're reminded that because we have a Savior who has overcome through him and through his spirit, we can overcome. Not in our own strength, but through Christ and through the Holy Spirit, we can actually overcome. We can make it through this chaos. Um, but finally, and maybe the main I mean, those are all points in here, but one of the a point that sometimes gets missed, I think. Um, we can worship in the midst of the chaos. I mean, this worship that was happening, five songs in, a, in, a, in two chapters of God's people and creation and angels breaking forth, that's all happening in chaos that's way worse than what we're experiencing now. And we can worship in the midst of that. In the midst of persecution. In the midst of temptation. In the midst of struggle. In the midst of a messy church, we can worship. We can go out after this and see the snowflakes and see the trees and feel the sun and feel the breeze and recognize that all of those things are crying out in worship to our God. And let those things stir our heart to worship. We can come to church every Sunday and worship with God's people and let the worship of God's people stir our hearts to worship. We can picture and remember Revelation 4, the picture of the throne room of God. Picture our God seated in glory and majesty and power and might and sovereign over all the chaos. And let that stir our heart to worship. And we can go to the next chapter, chapter 5, where we see our Savior. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Lamb of God who brings about the kingdom of God. And all of those things can stir our heart to worship even when we live in chaotic times. Let's come to our God in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for images like this, reminders that you're sovereign and you're in control, but also that you are beautiful and glorious and good and merciful. And we thank you as we live in the midst of our own chaotic time, Lord, of the reminder that you're still on your throne. You're still ruling and reigning, and you are good. And you're surrounded by the praises of your people. So, Father, help us We have such a struggle to lift our eyes beyond our current situation, our current reality. We easily get caught up in the turmoil and the struggle and the frustration of our current moment and don't lift our eyes to You. And so we pray, Father, that You would open our eyes to see the beauty and the glory and the power of what You're doing. Open our eyes to see the beauty and the power of the worship we have here on Sunday mornings, the beauty and the power of the worship of creation, Lord. Stir our hearts with comfort for you in this, with confidence, but even more so, Lord, may we worship you in every area of our lives. In your name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen.